Well, good morning, everyone. How is the skate in this morning? Is it fun? So if you get here early enough, you could have avoided the ice. You would have had to have been here by about 20 of 7. But uh, we're trusting anybody else who's on the road this morning will get here safely, and we know that you're praying about that. We'd like to welcome all of you here this morning, especially if you happen to be here visiting with us for the first time. Uh, Pastor Kevin's got a packet of information that he'd love to give to you. He's going to make his way down the center aisle. So if you're visiting for the first time, and you just raise your hand as he comes down, and he'll give that to you. There's some information in there about our church, as well as a card for you to fill out and drop in the offering plate in a little while. Uh, if you would, at the end of the rows, there are the, um, the friendship pads. Would you grab those, if you would, and sign your name and pass those down so we can record your attendance with us this morning? And if you're visiting, fill that out as well so that we can then uh, make sure that we get back to you. Every Sunday, you can receive an updated prayer agenda and copy of the missionary moments at the four doorways of the sanctuary. Um, if you'd like to receive those electronically, you can do that as well by letting the church office know. But we encourage you to grab those. Even if you're not here Wednesday night, grab them on Sunday so that you can be praying for the needs of the church, so you can be praying for each other more intelligently. The Bible Training Center is ready to start its next class, Bible Study Methods, on Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. starting February 7th, if we have enough interest. So if you're interested in that, please register by February 8th. Is that, is that right? Okay. Okay. The first class starts the 12th end, so register by the 8th um, by filling out the registration forms located in the Information Center in the Narthex. A uh, bunch of other announcements in the bulletin, some are there for the first time. The men's annual bowling night, February 6th, a weekend to remember marriage getaway, women's ministries inviting everybody to sight and sound with them on April 11th. Uh, ladies, there's information about the Snowflake Cafe coming up on the 21st and a lot of other stuff. So we pray that or encourage you to read everything that's in there. Take a look at all those opportunities to be growing in Christ and reaching out to the world. As we begin our worship this morning, let's uh, pause for a moment and pray together and focus our attention on the one who's brought us here. Our great God and our Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to gather this morning that we might worship you, the one God, the one whom we can trust, the one who created us, the one who desires to be not only our God but our Father. We do pray this morning for those who are still on their way in. Father, we pray that you would grant them safety, allow them to arrive here uh, without any problems. And Father, while we are here in this place, we pray that you would remove from us the distractions that so easily uh, draw our attention away from you and onto ourselves and the things around us. Help our eyes to be fixed on you so we might hear with our ears what it is you want to say to us through your word this morning, and that we might respond to your Holy Spirit as he speaks to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's uh, easy to give praise to the Lord and give thanks to him when the weather's gorgeous and when we see beautiful sunsets and uh, spend time at the lake or at the shore or different places like that. And we rejoice in God's creation. Maybe today it's a little harder to say, thank you, Lord, you're great. But this is just as much a evidence of his goodness and power in creation. 
throughout Scripture, uh, we read the writers exclaiming how great God is because of his creative power. But one of the things that also shows up is um, the wonder that God not only made creation, but he cares for us, his people. And the psalm, psalmist David in Psalm 8 said, O Lord, our Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with honor and majesty. So as we sing this first song, which is mostly about creation, remember that not only did God make a wonderful creation, but he made humankind, you and me, um, children, adults, aged, unborn. And that is perhaps in one sense the highest form of his creation in our earth, and we can rejoice in that. Stand with us as we sing.
that. Would you greet the worshipers around you? Take just a few moments, and then we'll call you back for a very important event. Good morning, everyone. Don't you like adventures? Uh, we've got an adventure going now. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for others to come, we still would like to recognize our graduates of the Bible Training Center. And I'd also, at the same time, like to tell you a little bit about the Bible Training Center. You can see on the screen there are some key verses that have to do with God's Word, 2 Timothy 2.15, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 which tell us that we're supposed to be studying to show ourselves approved to God, that tell us that God's word is so special, it's God-breathed, it's breathed out by God. And so we're delighted to be able to have a Bible training center. Just a, a few thoughts about the training center, some highlights. This is our ninth graduating class at Alden Union Church. We have now, with the group that's going to graduate this morning, 114 total graduates which includes nine current or former elders, seven current or former trustees. And uh, we have six to become despondent over them. He delights in us bringing them to him and is overjoyed when we lay them at his feet and leave them there. Psalm 139 reminds us that he knows the whole of it, and he does. In these two and a half years, I was challenged to the depths of my soul. The event that clearly changed me was when I lost my earthly father and learned again to cling to my heavenly one. His timing is always perfect. 2 Corinthians 12.9, his grace is sufficient, and it is. Being a Christian is not being an religion. It is being an intimate relationship with an intimate God. The relationship with, that started with in the beginning and in, is eternal and will not end. Even if we stray, he is there waiting for us to come back. It is a relationship that will never end. John 3.16 reminds us that he, he loves us and he gave his son. What more do we need? We were warned as a class that things will happen in your life. The more you understand, the more life will change, so be prepared. I was not. I am now. My, mod, my motto that is driving my family crazy is, it's okay. It's going to be okay. It's all right. We'll see what happens. 
And it is because it is not my own strength that I am here. It's through his strength and through his will. If you're thinking, I just don't have the time right now, it's okay. You'll get the time. And if you'll even have time to rest, after all, God created the world in six days and rested. No, we're not mini-gods, but we have a God who gives us what we need. If you're feeling alone in this world with no family, you know Christ, it's okay. You'll come to understand that you are part of a family that goes back to the ancient of days. If you think your life is too messed up right now and you can't concentrate on anything, it's okay. You'll meet Job in a whole new way and in a whole new level, and you'll learn really how God redeems. If you feel like no one gets you and you just know others think you're crazy to believe you're in a cult, it's, it, you're just not with today's world. If that's what, sorry, if they're saying that you're taking this religion thing too far, all these things have been said to me. It's okay, you'll learn about Noah, a man that no one understood, not even his family, who gave him, and they gave him a hard time. Why? Because in a dry desert, he was building an ark for a flood, which did not happen for a long, long time. I learned that I am just as spiritual as our pastors. If you think that shocks you, you just have to take BTC to find out why. Another fun little fact that you might be thinking is, I'm a church, and if you're a believer, so are you. In closing, knowing my hope is in Christ sets me apart from many family members and many, many coworkers, as it is not easy. In fact, there are times when I feel like Noah in a desert building an ark for a flood and it doesn't happen for a long, long time. But the Holy Spirit and I are never alone. Good morning. Perhaps the uh, thing that I, I got most out of BTC was that Kevin's not a bad guy. He's, he's, he's a great He's a great teacher, um, was God's faithfulness. And of course, uh, anytime you study the word of God, it doesn't come back void. And uh, that's, that, that says in and of itself anything about the word of God. Uh, however, the uh, surveys of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you see God's faithfulness throughout the entire generations of, of, believer, of Jewish Jewish. Uh, in the Old Testament to the believers of the new believers in the New Testament. And faithfulness was the thing that God's faithfulness was constantly uh, brought out to me. When my wife took BTC several years ago, she asked me to take it. And I kind of chuckled to her and I said, you want me to commit two and a half years, one night a week at a specific time to the type of job that I have? I, I have a job that I never know when I'm going to get done. It seems like everything can go wrong at the last minute. So I put it off, and I, I, I never, you know, never really thought about it seriously. And I'm saying this to encourage those out there who think two and a half years is a long time, and that it's hard to commit to two and a half years one night a week for three hours. But if you're sincere about it and you pray to God, and 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 you are affirm in your belief that the Lord wants you in this situation. He is faithful to see you through. And I'd like to share just one opportunity. I talked to my dispatcher at the beginning of this two and a half years ago, and I asked him about Thursday nights, and I told him what was going on Thursday nights. And, of course, he couldn't promise me every, anything, but 
he said he would, uh, he would do his best to try to get me done early as soon as he could. And on most occasions that happened, but this one particular Thursday, and I think it was when we were studying eschatology, which is Revelation, the study of end times, and that's really what I enjoyed. I went in in the morning, and, and uh, it was a disaster. My truck was a disaster. I'm a UPS driver. My truck was a disaster, and, and even my loader said, good luck today. And this was, of course, a Thursday. And, and I said to the Lord, you know, I breathed a prayer, and I said, this is on you, God. I, I ain't gonna, I'm not going to get done. And I don't know how I did it. Uh, well, I know how I did it, but I don't know what happened. Um, I actually arrived at class 10 minutes early and was su surprising everyone um, by being there on time. So my, my, my encouragement to you out there, in a nutshell, is you'll see God's faithfulness in this class. You'll see it through the class members and their growth. You'll see it in the camaraderie, uh, uh, your own personal growth. You'll see it in your own family life. You'll see in your daily walk uh, in life, you'll see the growth because of God's faithfulness. And so I encourage you, if you think two and a half years is, is too long to commit in the lifespan of Christian life, it's, it's really not. So thank you. Join me as we pray. Father, you did a great thing in giving us your word. It reveals who you are to us. It reveals to us how we're to live. It reveals to us what should be most important in our lives. And you've told us how important it is to study your word and to seek your word and to delve into your word and to treat it as treasure. And we're thankful for this group who's just completed two and a half years of intense study of your word and what you did in their lives as a result of it and the example they've been to us this morning. And we pray this would just be the start for them of daily searching into your word for what you have for them. And we pray it can be a renewed example for us who maybe aren't studying your word the way that we should, and that we should get back to doing that. And we're so thankful for the ministries you've given us here at our church for studying your word. We are thankful for Bible Training Center and for Bible School and Bible Studies and Awana and Explorer Girls and Women's Circles and our Sunday Services and our Kids' Worship and all the various ways we have faithful teachers who instruct in your word and give us all sorts of opportunities to study. May we be thankful for them. May we support them in prayer. And even more, may we attend these things and keep learning as much as your word as possible and be committed to that. You've also told us some other things in your word that are important to you. And this morning we're reminded that life is important to you because you are the giver of life. You are the only one who is to give life and take life. You say all life is special. And we pray you would help us this morning to stand for what you stand for and stand against what you stand against. 
We think of some of those we pray for each week. We pray that for them, for our military people, our college students, our missionaries, that you'd help them do the same thing where they are, to stand for what you stand for and stand against what you stand against. We pray for our leaders, our legislators, our government, that they would make policies that protect life, not to take life. And that we, we, we would be good citizens in speaking up for your truth wherever we have opportunity. And we would be examples of those who live out that truth that we think all life is special. You've also told us in your word how you want us to give. And then you give us opportunity this morning to do that. To give sacrificially. To give cheerfully. And especially to give out of love to you. And we pray this morning as you look at our hearts and we give that you will see we're giving the way you've asked us to. And we give you all the praise and honor and glory for all of these things this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. just sit I could just sit and wait for all your goodness hope to feel your presence I could just stay I could just stay right where I am and hope to feel you hope to feel something again
challenge. I hope that's my prayer every day and yours as well. Kids are dismissed to kids worship right now. So if you made it in, now you can make it out to the special place for you. In Psalm 139, King David marveled at God's knowledge of everything about him, what he said, where he was, what he was thinking. Um, but he also reflected with that same wonder at God's very intimate knowledge of him from his beginning, his prenatal life, we would say today. And I'd like to read to you what he said there as a preparation for our thoughts later in this service. You formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How gracious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. 
We're going to sing a hymn that asked God to do a very um, specific and significant work in our hearts. It's probably new to many of you. Uh, if it is, listen to us sing the first verse and join us on the second. If you know it, sing right along with us from the beginning. Let's stand as we sing. Welcome Becky Eisensee, the good doctor's bride. 
Would you stand, please? Let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we do have not just the opportunity to speak about those who've studied your word, but we can study it together now. I pray that you'll equip each one of us in a deeper way to be able to understand what it is that you're teaching about something that's going on all around us and something that every Christian needs to to know all about. So help us to that end so that we can be those who speak the truth in love. Help us to be a loving people. Help us not to be so filled with truth that we become arrogant. Help us to be loving people and speaking that truth in love. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll see the title of the message on the screen, The Sanctity of Human Life. We've heard that expression many, many times. And what we would like to do now is to take a look at what the Scripture is going to be teaching us about the sanctity of human life. It's been 42 years now. On January 22, 1973, the United States Supreme Court held 7-2 to two that a Texas statute that had forbidden abortion was unconstitutional. That was a landmark decision that canceled abortion laws in all 50 states. That decision made all unborn children non-persons under the law. It implied that human life in the developing child does not begin until birth. The unborn child, therefore, has no constitutional protection, no civil rights. A storm was created in 1973. Many pro-life groups have raised their voices in protest against abortion since that time. The third Sunday of January has been designated by many of those people who call themselves now pro-life as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It comes close to the Sunday of the decision that was made in 1973. Pastors and churches have been urged to make God's perspective on the sanctity of life clear on this particular day. And I want everyone at Alden Union Church, if you're new, if you're visiting with us, I want you to understand that Alden Union Church is opposed to abortion. Alden Union Church has a position paper that was developed years ago that sets forth scriptural teaching concerning abortion. We have members among us and those who attend our church who support the work that is done at the Delaware County Pregnancy Center. We've had a couple of our pastors, myself included, participate on the pastor's advisory board for the center in the past. We used to participate in the life chain. Some of you will remember that. It's an abortion statement that was made several years ago to local hospital officials in a very public way as signs were held on streets and all sorts of different protests took place during that particular time. I know that I've written many letters to hospital administrators in the area. I participated with several local pastors years ago in a weekly radio broadcast called Roundtable, where, among other things, we interviewed pro-life advocates and endorsed abortion alternatives and tried to teach what the Scripture teaches about abortion. What I'm saying and why I'm saying that is because we are unashamedly publicly opposed to abortion, and we've done some things about it. But the very best thing I know to do about the abortion issue is to continue to share the biblical perspective on the sanctity of human life. I would like for Alden Union Church not to be known as those people who are 
against all of these things, but those who hold to what the Bible teaches. And that's where we go. What does the Bible teach about this issue? And if the Bible teaches something about abortion, teaches against abortion, then that's where we want to be. Why as a church should we be concerned with this issue? If you've got an outline, you can follow along on there. You can see where we're, where we're headed on the screen here. But why should we be concerned with this issue? First of all, because we are called to be salt, light, and fragrance. We talked about that last week. We are salt, light, and fragrance, which makes it necessary for us to make a difference. That's why God put us here, to permeate the world, to permeate morality, to permeate those who are here with the truth that God gives us in his word. Secondly, the church should be concerned with this issue because of the domino effect. What's the domino effect? Well, the domino effect has to do with abortion, then leading to a cheapening of the sanctity of human life, and then from there we go to infanticide, we go to euthanasia, we go to the continuing momentum to disregard the sanctity of human life. And it's something that once that starts, and it's already started, it's just it's growing and growing and growing. Third reason why we should be concerned about this issue is because since it is sin, and we hope to show this from the scriptures this morning, since it is sin, we cannot remain silent, ignorant, or apathetic and still glorify God. And that's what we're called to do. That's the purpose why we exist, is to glorify God. And fourthly, because we must, like Ezekiel's watchmen, sound the alarm when danger presents itself. Remember, the watchman's goal was to sound forth the alarm, warn the people. If he didn't warn the people, then he was guilty of what took place afterwards. And we don't want to be the watchman who doesn't sound the alarm. Fifthly, because Christians are under increasing pressure to be supportive and involved in abortion, and a lot of fun is made of people who take fundamentalist stands on certain issues, we want to be sure that we are knowing God's perspective on this whole thing. Sixthly, because the statistics are mind-boggling. I can't even begin to tell you how many babies have been aborted since 1973. You can read statistics. I know at one point recently it was over 56 million, and that's got to be understated. The statistics are mind-boggling. And then another reason why the church should be concerned with this issue is because only God has the keys of life and death. And some people would take those keys away from him and decide that they would play God and determine who lives and who dies. What I'd like for us to do is to go beyond the emotional issues and go to the scriptures because the emotions, you've seen it before, you've seen those people who are pro-life and they're lined up in protests against those people who are pro-choice or those people who are pro-abortion. And you can see those who are supposed to be giving the Christian viewpoint are screaming and yelling at people, calling them murderers, and the veins are bulging on their necks, and they're, they're, they're acting just like they had no knowledge of the Lord living in their lives. We don't want to get beyond the emotions. We want to get to the Scriptures, and the Scriptures teach us always to be speaking the truth in love. Let me, uh, let me ask you a multiple-choice quiz real quickly. The most dangerous place on earth, in your car on New Year's Eve, swimming in shark-infested waters, the front lines of a battlefield, Iran or Syria and their terrorist camps, or the most dangerous place on earth in a mother's womb. 
The correct answer is in a mother's womb. Every 30 seconds, a baby is killed by abortion in the United States. What I've just deliberately done is to give you an emotional argument. That's an emotional argument that stirs us, and yet that's not where I'd like for us to conclude. Emotions run high on both sides. Again, and I've said this several times already, the critical issue for the Christian is based not on emotions, but on the Word of God. We want to be biblically based first, then our emotions can be used intelligently. But let's not jump to the emotions. There are so many emotional appeals that we could go to with this issue. What I'd like to get to is the, what I call the critical question. Does the Bible recognize a preborn baby as a person? Please forgive me if I use preborn baby instead of fetus. For some reason, it appeals to me a whole lot more. Does the Bible recognize a preborn baby as a person? If the Bible recognizes a preborn baby as a human being, as a person, then the question of abortion is easily, emphatically, and authoritatively settled once for all. Because if a preborn baby is human in the womb, is a person already in the womb, then all the scriptures related to the divine commands to protect and preserve human life apply. Now, what do I mean by that? If in a mother's womb there is a real person, then in Genesis 9-6, we see the institution of capital punishment for the taking of a life. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Or we could go to other scriptures, Exodus 20-13, you shall not murder. That would have to apply if there's a person in the mother's womb. That person can't be killed without violating God's law and any moral law that is there. And in Revelation 1.18, I've already alluded to when Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. That would apply because there would be the death then of a preborn baby in the womb, if that in fact is a person. The Bible does recognize a preborn baby as a personal being. Therefore, these scriptures do apply. And that's my thesis here this morning, that We've got to be very, very crucial in this critical question. Does the Bible recognize a preborn baby as a person? And my answer is yes, and I hope to prove that to each one of us in the next few moments. First of all, some characteristics of a preborn baby from the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 25, and you're, you're welcome to turn to any of these scriptures you'd like to, but we have a short amount of time. So I'm going to put a lot on the screen. We're going to go quickly. But if you want to turn to that, you're welcome to. I'm going to highlight some of the, uh, the portions of these verses, but I'll read all of them. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 24, here's what it says. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. We're going to see this a little bit later on, that conception being able to have a baby is a gift from God, and we see that already here. But notice what it says in verse 22. The children struggled together. This is in her womb. The children struggled together. The New International Version says they jostled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations, now note this, two nations are in your womb not will be 
Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Twins in her womb prior to the time that she brought them to full birth. So in Genesis 25, verses 21 through 24, what do we see about characteristics of a preborn baby? I don't think that I'm overstating it to say we've got sibling rivalry going on in the womb. Is that a mark of personhood? Uh, anybody here ever been involved in sibling rivalry? Um, I have, and I, I think probably anybody here who's had a brother or a sister probably would say the same thing. I see brothers and sisters looking at each other right now in a way that indicates to me that um, they understand this term. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of John the Baptist, it says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Some of the translations will say even from birth. But I like this translation, even from his mother's womb. Why do I say that? Because if we put this together with some other verses later on in Luke, in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, and I, I'm not going to go through the context, but I think having come through the Christmas season not so long ago, we understand the context. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That's speaking of John the Baptist in Elizabeth. He leaped. Now, why did he leap? could have been something totally coincidental except for the fact that Luke 1.15 tells us that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He understood through the Holy Spirit something was going on. Uh, it, the verses go on to continue. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb he didn't just leap. He leaped for joy. Is joy an emotion? Are we seeing here not only sibling rivalry within the womb, some, someone being filled with the Holy Spirit even from within the womb, leaping for joy, showing emotion? Is there personhood in the womb? These scriptures would argue very, very strongly that something is going on there that is very personal within the womb. Scripture was read earlier from Psalm 139. I'd like to invite all of you to turn there with me, please. Psalm 139. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, David understood this whole concept of characteristics of a preborn baby indicating personhood. In verse 13, once again, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I like the study note that is, is in the new ESV study Bible. The days that were formed for me. It says the worshiper realizes that even before his mother knew she was pregnant, the Lord was already showing his care for him 
his personal life began in the womb and God had already laid out its course. That's pretty clear teaching from scriptures and as we keep going through the scriptures and I'm not listing all of the verses but in Jeremiah chapter 20 verses 17 and 18 Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He had some bad moments. There were some times when he was in deep mourning. We know from his book, The Lamentations. But Jeremiah says this, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave or his tomb. And her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Do you see how personal he is? I was in that womb. It was me that was there. And we've got this womb tomb going on here. Kill me in my mother's womb. Why didn't that happen to me? Job utters something very similar. Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child as infants who never see the light? Infants who never see the light. That's what he was talking about in terms of being inside the womb. There are infants that are inside wombs. Moving on to a little different thought, Jesus became human at the moment of conception by the Holy Spirit as well. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't say with fetus, with child. In fact, with child occurs 26 times in the scriptures. Fetus doesn't occur at all. She was found to be with child. Another thought here. Preborn children were treated equally as adults in the command of Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 and 23. Here was the law that was given. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, this is kind of like an innocent victim of what goes on, an accidental thing, so that her children come out. But there is no harm. That is accidental miscarriage, but there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. That means that if that baby was harmed, it should be life for life. It is a capital offense for that baby to be killed in that situation. How do we interpret these verses? Here's what Francis Schaeffer did. He checked the exegesis of these verses with five Hebrew scholars, and he was convinced of this interpretation. Accidental premature birth, penalty is a fine. Injury or death to the baby, eye for an eye, including life for life, a capital punishment. I alluded to this earlier. The Bible considers conception as God's gift. We can see that all over the scriptures. But one example would be in Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, where it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior 
are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. We could go elsewhere. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Conception is God's gift. He helped her to be able to get that. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. Did you notice that expression? Gave her conception. And she bore a son. And we all know about Hannah and what happened with Hannah and Samuel and God gifting her with Samuel, as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And so the conclusion that we come to from that is that children are a blessing, not a nuisance. The way that children are spoken of today, isn't it a shame what we hear? Children who are a reward to parents, who are a blessing, who are part of their heritage, sometimes are referred to as a nuisance. The number one reason for abortion is the burden a child will put parent or parents under. Over 95% of the abortions performed today involve women who simply do not want to have a baby. Less than 5% of abortions are for reasons of rape, incest, or the risk of the mother's health. Moving on, the Old Testament does not make a distinction between a child in the womb and outside of the womb. The same word is used to describe children inside and outside. The Old Testament doesn't make a distinction. In Exodus 21, verse 4, it's talking here about children outside the womb. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. That's children. Same Hebrew word that we saw in, he, in, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. That's children outside the womb in one case, inside the womb. It's the Hebrew word yelled referring to children inside and outside in the same chapter. Only a few verses apart. Same thing happens in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't make a distinction between a child in the womb and outside the womb. It's the same Greek word, brephos, used in the following verses. We've seen uh, Mary's greeting. It says the baby leaped in her womb. A little bit later in verse 44, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. But then when we come to Acts chapter 7, verse 19, it's speaking of Pharaoh here. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. These are outside the womb, but it's the same word that is used for the child that was inside the womb that we saw earlier. Now, there are those who raise objections to this whole teaching from the Scriptures. They'll object, and one of the objections is, but the fetus isn't really a human being, is it? I cringe when I use the word it, but that's the argument. Isn't it a mass of tissue? The fetus isn't really a human being, that's an objection. And I won't quote all of the sources. It'll take me too long to do that, but uh, there are sources that are all over. Here's what one has written. Life is certainly present after fertilization of the egg by the sperm when only one cell is present. But is this human life? Certainly the cell is living, growing, and multiplying. And since this cell has every potential for producing an adult human being, we recognize it as life. 
The cell is not plant life, nor is it animal life. Therefore, we conclude it is human life. The question, but the fetus isn't really a human being, is it, from another source? And the answer is, if it's not life, what is it? If he isn't alive, then why is he growing? And if he's alive and a human being, why are we killing him? Someone else has said this. Let's be honest for a moment. Women do not give birth to hamsters. Men and women don't reproduce cabbages. When men and women unite, they reproduce themselves. If you look at what comes out of a baby's womb after nine months, you'll see that it is a baby. And if you look inside that womb at any time during the nine months, you'll see, surprise, a baby. Go to any basic biology textbook and check out fetal diagrams. What you'll be seeing looking back at you is a baby. Question. Okay, it's life, but how can you say it's a person? It's just a part of the woman's body, isn't it? No medical book in the country would endorse that view. Biologically, it simply isn't true. An unborn child has a different genetic makeup than its mother. It has its own respiratory system, its own heart, internal organs, nervous system, blood type, even sexuality. It recognizes the voice of its mother, can suck its thumb, hiccup, and even cry inside the womb, all on its own. For the rest of its life, it will merely actualize the genetic instructions that were created at conception. Here's another source says this. Science tells us, and I add, albeit unwittingly sometimes, that human life begins at the time of conception. From the moment fertilization takes place, the child's genetic makeup is already complete. Its gender has already been determined along with its height and hair, eye and skin color. The only thing the embryo needs to become a fully functioning being is the time to grow and develop. Objection. What if the mother's life is endangered? That's a tough question. If you came to a situation where you were told either the mother or the child has to die, that's a decision that has to be made with great wisdom before the Lord. But C. Everett Koop, that name is very familiar, one time Surgeon General of the United States, he said this from his time at Children's Hospital here in the city and other places. He said, in my 36 years in pediatric surgery, I have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life. What if birth defects are likely? Now, the emotional argument would say, I could give you a case why John Wesley should have been aborted. I could give you a case where Beethoven should have been. Uh, if you knew the circumstances about his particular birth, you would have said his parents should have never had him. Same thing about Ethel Waters, the great singer. You could make a case that Jesus should have been aborted understanding the nature of what was going on with his mother and her situation. Uh, born in a cave, born in a stable, he didn't, things didn't look like they were going to work out real well for him. Those are all parts of the emotional arguments, but please go back to the scriptures and then we can intelligently look at some of these emotional things. But what if birth defects are likely? My answer to that is, so what? So what? And, and I don't mean that callously, and I don't mean that unfeelingly, but birth defects. Well, so if a baby is said to be born, it looks like the baby's going to have some birth defects, therefore we need to abort. Well, what about deformities that aren't detected before death? Does that mean we kill the babies on the delivery table? Or what about a deformity that takes shape six months after birth or ten years? Or what if something takes place at the age you are right now? 
what if you develop some type of a deformity or some type of uh, something that's not normal? All of us are handicapped. How perfect does someone need to be? Exodus 4.11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? We're all prescription people. God's prescribed how we're to be. Do we all have to be perfect? No, we just have to be God's prescribed person. Objection. What if the child is conceived through rape or incest? Quick answer. It's a strange kind of justice that would kill an innocent child for the crime of its father. Two wrongs don't make a right, especially when there are loving parents who would willingly take that child. What if the birth of the child would be a hardship for the parents? Quick answer, what a selfish world. What if the child is not wanted and would not be loved? Someone would love that child if given the opportunity. Pro-choice doesn't mean the choice between abortion and letting the child live. There are other choices. doesn't have to be that. It can be a choice of whether that child is going to be born to the parents and then adopted or not. That's another choice that is there. It doesn't have to be one or the other. There are alternatives to abortion in virtually every case. The Christian's responsibility. First of all, realize we have a responsibility. A lot of Christians don't. Realize we have a responsibility. Verses like Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. It's not applying just to abortion, but certainly we've got to apply it to that. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. God doesn't excuse the ignorant and indifferent from culpability in the matter. Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14 tell us much the same. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor to him and has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. A couple of real quick tips for each one of us as believers. What's our responsibility? Become educated in the political process. Find out how it is that we can help out in this situation. Again, without being arrogant, without being violent, without breaking God's other laws, but what can we do? We can support crisis pregnancy centers like Delaware County Pregnancy Center. We can help a married couple who's having a hard time with their family, their children, because they don't have the finances. We can direct a young woman in trouble where she can get help or we can help her. We can talk with those who are guilty over a past abortion. We can share the great forgiveness of God. There is much that we can do. We can teach our kids not only to wait, but why to wait. And a part of that has to do with this whole idea of children that maybe are unwanted or they're not ready for, but we need to teach our kids why to wait. We can be praying, and we've got to understand God's forgiveness. We've got to share that with others. Please understand abortion is not the unpardonable sin. There may be those who are among us who've had abortions. It is not the unpardonable sin. A woman who's had an abortion... A man who's encouraged that or pressured that or forced that 
a doctor or medical worker who performed or assisted in an abortion, all that can be forgiven upon confessing, repenting, forsaking that sin. I wish I had time to talk a lot more about that, but please hear me. If you, if you take a look on the screen for just a moment, you see sin in the middle. What we try to do before a sin, like abortion, were to take place. We try to do everything in our power to prevent that. We teach that, we preach that, we counsel that, we do everything that we can. But inevitably, sin occurs. So then what do we do? We don't keep hammering and hammering. Then our goal is to be restorative on the other side of sin. It's to be restorative. It's for you to understand that you can go on with your life, that God offers forgiveness. He's a great, loving, forgiving God. And you don't have to wallow in guilt the rest of your life. You can move on from that. And that's a Christian's responsibility to help others to understand God's forgiveness. So let me stop with that. Simply saying this, we need to know our responsibility in this issue. But please understand, part of that responsibility is that we've got a great message of love. It's not just all hammering people. It's telling people on the one side of sin, don't do it. But on the other side of sin, God is a loving, forgiving God. And God will help you to put your life back together again. Heavenly Father, we pray for those who perhaps needed some knowledge today, others who needed some encouragement, some challenge, others who need comfort, because you're a great God and you can accomplish all of those things all in the one and the same time that we're here together. And please help it to be understood by all of us that the sin of abortion, that it really is a sin, is not unforgivable. It's not unpardonable. And we shouldn't be haranguing people and we shouldn't be yelling and screaming and getting all emotional, what we should be doing is speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. Please help us to that end. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with you. God of justice, Savior to all came to rescue the weak and the poor, chose to serve and not be served. Jesus, you have called us freely. We've received. Freely we will.
and send us out. Fill us up and send us out. Fill us up and send us out, Lord. Fill us up and send us out. Fill us up and send us out. Fill us up and send us out, Lord. Fill us up and send us out. Fill us up and send us out. Fill us up and send us out, Lord. Father, we are all sinners. Your word tells us that we've committed many sins. We've isolated one in particular today. But help every one of us to realize nobody's better than anybody else. And we don't claim to be. But thank you that because of the blood of the Lord Jesus, every one of us can be forgiven of all of these sins. So help us to take that message into action into this world as you've called us to be salt, light, and fragrance. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.